You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Please take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We skipped ahead a few verses for Christmas, so we need to backtrack just a little bit and pick up where we left off at the beginning of chapter 2. The topic that Paul is driving home here is that of church unity. Church unity. In verse 1, he provides the reasons for church unity. Why is unity in the body of Christ so important? Why is it such a big deal? What should be our proper motivation for maintaining unity within the church? It's not to give more to get more. Rather, we maintain unity because we have already received confidence in Christ, comfort from God's love, communion with the Holy Spirit, and a cause for loving others. And as recipients of so much grace and mercy and love from the Trinity, we have every reason, every reason to love everyone else who has also received those same blessings. That's verse 1. In verse 2, Paul provides the results of church unity. The results of church unity. He presents the motivation followed by the outcome. And he says, the undivided church is united in conviction that they are to be of the same mind, that the undivided church is united in affection, having the same love, united in passion, being of full accord, and united in direction of one mind. And so Paul jumps from the beginning to the end. He says, here are your motivations for maintaining church unity. And then he says, here are the outcomes for maintaining that unity. Both components here, The reasons for unity and the results of unity are extremely important for the life and health of the church. But they don't answer that critical question, do they? How? How? How do we do this? What must we do to take these motivations and move them forward? Move them towards that goal of united hearts and minds with true spiritual unity found in the church. How do we do that? What must we do? Well, that's the rest of the section before us. Today, we will look at the rivals of church unity, the rivals of church unity. And next week, we will look at the requirements of church unity. After that, we will finally be caught up with Christmas. But it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get there. But for now, please follow along as I read the entire section, beginning in verse 1. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
If the greatest Christian virtue is love, then the greatest Christian attitude is humility. That's the key word that we're going to look at today. It's found here in verse 3. That word humility, where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Dr. Harry Ironside, a former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, was at one time convinced of his lack of humility. And so a good friend came up with a cure. He encouraged Harry to march through the streets of Chicago wearing a sandwich board full of scriptures. All the while, he was told he should shout the verses to the top of his lungs so that anyone passing by could hear him. Well, Dr. Ironside agreed to this venture, and he set out on his humble quest to make a public spectacle of himself for the cause of Christ. And after successfully doing so, he returned home to his study, removed the board, sat down, and smugly said to himself, I'll bet there's not another man in town who would do that. (laughs) Humility is perhaps one of the hardest and most elusive attitudes to adopt. Humility is difficult, but thankfully, God's word is far from silent concerning this critical mindset. Now, we haven't jumped ship. We're still on that theme of spiritual unity. However, over the next several weeks, we will see how humility is the key that unlocks the door to a harmonious church. Without humility, friends, we we don't have anything. We don't have anything without humility. Humility is so crucial to the Christian life, you can't even have love, the highest Christian virtue there is, without it. You have to have humility. You must have it. Backing up a little bit further even, you can't even get saved without humility. No proud person responds to the gospel in faith. It just doesn't happen. I've mentioned before that no one struts into the kingdom of heaven. If you think that you can somehow be redeemed without recognizing your sin, then you have a rude awakening waiting for you. Psalm 147.6 says, The Lord lifts up the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. Think about that. What a picture. This picture of God lifting up the humble, pulling somebody up out of the dirt, And then taking someone who is proud and wicked and casting them, throwing them down into the dust. What a vivid picture. When it comes to all things Christian, humility is key. Humility is key. And if you are following along in your sermon sheet that was provided for you in your bulletin, that is the first blank at the top of the page. The essential attitude for unity is humility. The essential attitude for unity is humility. Without humility, you can't have unity. You might have an attractive cult or an entertaining club, but true spiritual unity, the kind that we've already looked at in verses one and two, will only find fertile soil in the hearts of humble men and women. And as we have been slowly making our way through this section on church unity, if you have thought to yourself, this is impossible, this really, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful dream. It's a great ideal. But boots on the ground, what does this look like? I can't see it. This could never happen. 
This is one of those high and lofty goals that is unattainable, unreachable. Or maybe you've thought, this is nice and we should all get along, but let's get real. This will never happen in our church. Well, if you've thought that, then today's message is for you. In fact, this whole month is for you, so don't go anywhere. Because here we, we, we get a picture of not only, not only what to do and how to do it and what we're striving for and why we should do it. Here we get a picture that, friends, this is possible. This is achievable. In fact, this is expected and required of us here and now. We don't have to wait until we're glorified to get along with each other. We don't have to wait until we're glorified to live in the state of unity that is described here in this text. And we have to remember that. The God of Scripture doesn't expect us to exhaust ourselves in pursuit of the impossible. He has provided for us, here and all over the New Testament, clear instructions on how to behave within the church. And not only can we agree and be of the same mind, have the same love, be of full accord and of one mind. Not only is that possible, but we are required by God to do it. We're required to be united like that. It's not easy, folks, but it's doable. Today, we're going to look at the opposition, though. We're going to look at the roadblocks. What are the things that prevent us from doing that? Why is it so hard? Why is it so difficult we're going to see that here in the first half of verse 3. These are the rivals of church unity, the thoughts and attitudes that run counter to the Spirit's work in the bond of peace. As we consider our intentions and actions towards one another, what are the things that we need to look out for? What are the things that we need to be on the alert for? Well, according to Paul, there are two vices behind disunity. And he begins with this emphatic command here at the beginning of verse 3 to intentionally have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. He says, do nothing. I found it interesting as I was studying this text this week. There's no verb here in the original language. That word do has been supplied by our translators, our English translators. But it gets more interesting than that because in the Greek, we actually have a double negative here. Now, that's a big no-no in English. You might remember that from elementary school. You don't put two negatives next to each other, but it's perfectly acceptable in biblical Greek. So a wooden translation of this phrase would sound something like this. Nothing, no nothing at all. Nothing, nothing. This is an emphatic command for every believer of every age. Never, never, never. Do anything with the following motives. That means that there is never a time when it's okay. There is never a time when you have to choose the lesser of two evils and still go with an evil option. This is never on the table. For you, for me, this is something that we as believers are to never, never, never. Even if we feel like we have to, we are never to succumb and do anything anything with these motivations. It's not allowed. Do nothing. So what are they? What are these attitudes that we are to avoid at all costs for the sake of spiritual unity? Well, the first motive behind disunity is personal gain. Personal gain, that's number one. Personal gain. 
He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Unless you are visiting or new to this church, that phrase, selfish ambition, should sound familiar to you. We saw it not too long ago in chapter 1, verse 17. You will remember that Paul is writing this letter within a specific context. He is under house arrest in Rome. And he had always wanted to go to Rome. It was a dream of his. I would love to go to Rome. Not particularly for the same reason as Paul. My reasons are more selfish and more based than that. But he always wanted to go to Rome to share the gospel. To spread the gospel. As far and as wide as he could. Because Rome was the very heart of the empire. It was the epicenter of the civilized world. To reach Rome with the gospel would be to reach the known world with the power of God unto salvation. Paul wanted so desperately to preach in Rome. But once he got there, he didn't find himself out and about in the synagogues or on the street corner or in the public market. No, he found himself chained to a praetorian guard about 18 inches away at all times at the wrist. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year. Not the situation that Paul was hoping for. It's difficult to do evangelism when you're under house arrest. It's hard to make a social impact. And yet, even in these humble circumstances, Paul remained faithful. He preached the gospel and he maintained a good attitude. As a result, the elite guards that he is chained to, they respond in faith and they start getting saved. And they go back to Caesar's household and they start sharing the gospel with Caesar's family. And guess what happens? They start getting saved. And other believers start hearing about the power of the gospel and they become more bold to fearlessly evangelize and to spread and speak the word without fear. And and what's happening? People are getting saved. Even under house arrest, the gospel cannot be stopped, and Paul's chains are actually pushing the message out while holding him back at home. And that is happening. All of that is happening as Paul sits down to write this letter. He has so much to be thankful for, and he rejoices in what the Lord is doing. And yet, even in spite of that, while all this is going on, There are still those within the body of Christ who are bent on making it hard for him. Really hard for the Apostle Paul. There are those who are preaching the gospel. Their theology and doctrine are sound, but their motives are all wrong. Their attitude stinks. And Paul uses this word, selfish ambition, to describe their intentions. Starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. How is that possible? How do you preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill? So they aren't all doing it. Some of them actually have good motives. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of, and here's our word, selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You see, these preachers were doing everything right. They had the right message. They were proclaiming Christ. They centered their ministries around the death, burial, and resurrection of God's perfect son and man's perfect substitute. But they were doing it selfishly. They were doing it 
out of a lack of sincerity because they wanted to hurt Paul in the process. That was their motivation. They were preaching Christ, but they weren't in it for Christ. They were in it for themselves. The Greek word here for selfish ambition, it's a fascinating word. It originally described a day laborer or someone who would put in an honest day's work and get an honest day's pay for the work that they put in. It's just a simple worker. But as time marched on, the word evolved, and it eventually took on the meaning of a mercenary, someone who cared only about themselves. It referred to someone who wasn't a team player, who labored solely for personal advancement. These were the ladder climbers, the brown nosers, the backstabbers. It's not surprising that in secular Greek, this word was often used to refer to career politicians, ruthless men who would do anything to get a step ahead. They would put others down in order to build themselves up. Aristotle defined this word by saying, quote, here's a person who has a personal agenda. Here's somebody acting in their own self-interest, end quote. You see, these Roman preachers of Philippians chapter one had mixed intentions. I mean, sure, they wanted to see Christ proclaimed, but they also wanted all the attention, all the honor, and all the prestige that comes with being really good at it. Ultimately, they had their own agendas. They were preaching ambitiously for self, for personal gain. Just a little bit later here in chapter two, as we've already seen, Paul says, do nothing from that attitude. Do nothing from selfish ambition. And church, let's not forget, he's writing to the church. He's not writing to unbelievers here. He is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians about Christians. And he's saying, don't act like this. Don't do it, ever. It doesn't matter whether your cause or your ministry is right or not. You can't find a higher cause than preaching Christ, but your attitude and your motives matter. They matter. Let's flip over to James chapter three. Just after the book of Hebrews, James chapter three. This word appears in several places. But look at how James uses it. Again, here within the context of the church. James chapter three, finishing out the chapter, starting with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and, there's our word, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition Exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. According to James, this attitude of selfish ambition is earthly, it's unspiritual and it's demonic. It is the source of disorder in every vile practice. In fact, that word that we see here, disorder, in every vile practice, he's literally talking about anarchy. 
He's saying there is no order. There is no function. It it reverts back to the book of Judges in one sense. Every man starts doing what is right in his own eyes, in his own estimation. And that never works out well, folks. It never works out well. It is a wisdom that doesn't come down from above, but up from below. Selfish ambition, personal gain, me-centered thinking is always destructive. It's destructive to me, it's destructive to you, and it's destructive to others. Notice too in verse 14, he says, if you happen to have this bitter jealousy and this selfish ambition in your heart, then come to grips with it. The NASB says, do do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. But I particularly like how the Holman translation puts it. It simply says, don't brag and deny the truth. Don't brag and deny the truth. In other words, if you have this sin in your heart, it will come out in how you talk about yourself. We can control a lot of things. But James, if we were to back up just a little bit further, even in chapter three, he talks about how we cannot control our tongue. How we need to try, right? We need to work on it. But who can? Who can control their tongue when it comes to absolutely everything that comes out? And yet, we are also told by our Savior that what comes out of our mouth is what's found in our heart. So if we have this sin in our heart, it will come out in how we talk about ourselves. You see, people who are guilty of this particular sin typically don't recognize it. They don't see it. They're self-deceived. Sure, they might be incredibly discerning when it comes to seeing this sin in others. They often assume the worst and believe that they can peek behind the curtain of men's souls. They perceive secrets and conspiracies because that's how they think. And they don't realize that not everyone is operating from the same earthly wisdom that they are. Friends, this sin of selfish ambition is incredibly deceptive. And it's incredibly hard to identify within ourselves. But it does come out. It comes out in our self-promotion, our high self-esteem, when we brag about ourselves. And in doing so, we let others know, because it's really important for us to let others know that it's really about us, and it's not really about Christ or what he wants. Sure, we might clothe it in that. We might say, oh, it's all for the Lord. But is it really? Is it really for him or is it really for us? Perhaps you've heard the story of the pastor who once declared, I have a wonderful sermon on humility, but I refuse to preach it until the crowds get bigger. Or maybe you've heard the story of a young American student who once visited the Beethoven Museum in Bonn, Germany. Upon arrival, she immediately became fascinated with the piano that Beethoven had composed so many of his great works on. She asked the museum guard if she could be so bold as to sit down and play a few bars. Well, at first the guard refused, but after a generous tip, he agreed to look the other way. The girl went to the piano and she tinkled out the opening of Moonlight Sonata. Quite pleased with herself, she said to the guard on the way out, I suppose all the great pianists who come here want to play on that piano. To which the guard shook his head and said, Paderewski, the famous pianist from Poland, was here just a few years ago, and he said he wasn't worthy to touch it. You see, we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we should. And we often assume that others are just as bad, if not worse, than we are. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. 
Self-promotion, personal gain is ugly and it's obvious to everyone else, but it is hidden to us and it is so deceptive, but it's also so deadly. According to Romans 2.8, those who are self-seeking, same word for selfish ambition here, those who are known for this attitude and do not obey the truth, they will be the recipients of divine wrath and fury. This word also appears in Galatians 5 as one of the works of the flesh. Interestingly enough, there are 15 works of the flesh listed there in Galatians 5, and eight of them are sins of disunity. Eight of them have to do with sins of discord. That's how serious this attitude is, according to God. So we have to ask ourselves, if this sin of selfish ambition is so serious and so self-deceptive, then how do I know if I have it or not? How do I know if it's in my heart? How do I go looking for it if it's constantly hiding from me? If most folks don't know that they have the spiritual cancer eating away at their character, how do I find out if I do or not? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. Because here's a simple test that might help shed some light on the problem. Just ask yourself this question, particularly when it comes to our relationships here with other folks in the church. Ask yourself this question. Do I think in terms of us or do I think in terms of me and them or us and them? How do I think regarding that person over there or this person over here or this ministry over there as opposed to my ministry or whatever I'm involved in? Do I think in terms of us or do I think in terms of us and them or myself and them? It's a good question to ask because it doesn't matter how right you are or how wrong they are or how noble your cause is. It really doesn't matter. I mean, remember, some were preaching Christ hoping to hurt Paul. It doesn't matter how important your ministry might be. When it's you and them, not us, it's personal and it's prideful. But before moving on, what does this look like in the church? Let's put a few feet to this thing. Okay, pick a ministry, any ministry. Now make that ministry your ministry. And let's say God has given you a heart for seeing that ministry grow and flourish. So far, so good, right? These are good things. These are wonderful things. God has given you that desire. He has specifically gifted you for the work of that ministry. He has given you a heart for it. These are all wonderful things. Grace gifts from the Lord. But now that this ministry has found its way into your self-deceiving heart, what does your heart start telling you? What is the big temptation that arises? You start thinking to yourself, my ministry that I care so much about is more important. It's more important than others. In fact, other people need to see just how important my ministry is. In fact, this church needs to be known for my ministry because this is the linchpin. This is the one all-important ministry that we should all be behind. After all, it's my heart. We need to identify ourselves by this central ministry because it is so important, far more important than passing out tracts or making quilts or teaching children about Jesus. No, this ministry needs to be all about men's ministry or women's ministry, 
or facility improvement, or biblical counseling, or missions, or evangelism, or apologetics, or worship, or children's ministry, or potlucks and picnics, or family functions, or whatever ministry matters most to me. And if you aren't one of us, you're one of them. And if you don't appreciate my favorite ministry as much as I do, then that's too bad. And since I'm stepping on everyone's toes this morning, let me add mine to the mix, preaching. As we've already seen in Philippians 1, it is easy to even preach Christ with the wrong motives, with the wrong heart. Look, whatever your strongest ministry might be, I'm in as much danger as you are, probably even more, because my ministry happens to be the most visible and the most accountable ministry in the church. I love preaching. Don't get me wrong. It is a big part of my gift, and my desire is to preach Christ. But friends, I can't afford to preach Christ, even do a good thing like that with wrong motives, or do it to the exclusion or the depreciation of other parts of the body. I don't have that right. There shouldn't be an us and them ever, period, within this church. There's no room for it. Listen, all ministries of this church are important, every single one of them. They all serve a function as the body of Christ. They don't serve the same function, and yes, I'll even admit, they're not all equal, but they all provide for an essential need. And God has spiritually gifted each and every one of us differently. He's given us different desires, different gifts. And if he's given you a heart for a different ministry, I'm just guessing that most people in this room probably don't have a heart for preaching. Does anyone want to come up here and finish out this message? Probably not. And that's okay. That is okay. But it doesn't mean that we don't need children's workers or that we don't need someone making quilts for people that, that are homeless or in need. It doesn't mean that we don't need to pass out tracts or that we need to make sure that our kids are defended or, or, or fortified with truth and apologetics. We need all of those things. We need every single one of these ministries because they all provide an essential need and God has blessed us with them. He has given us each and every one of us, different desires, different hearts for these ministries, but he has brought us together and he has made this mixture what it is. We should celebrate those things in each other. We should encourage those things in each other. It should never be an us and them. It should never be a, well, mine, mine is far more important. And if we're going to exclude anything, we can exclude your ministry over here. No, friends, that is not the right attitude. That is selfish ambition. That is something that we are told never, never, ever do anything with that sort of attitude. And when we remember that behind all of these things, God is the one who has gifted us. God is the one who has brought this conglomeration, this mixed bag of different folks with different desires and, and different gifts together. When we remember that, we can appreciate and even encourage and build up each other's biblical ministries because they all have value. And if God has given you a particular desire and gifting for a particular ministry and you, are, you, you have been... You've been set on fire for that thing and pushed off 
to go and to do, then praise God for that. And it's okay if you love that ministry more than others. That's natural. Just don't value it more than others. Beloved, don't start thinking it's us or them. It's either one of us or one of them. Because if those thoughts are allowed to run wild in your heart, odds are you have this sin in your life. You just didn't know it. It just hasn't been apparent. It hasn't been clear to you. But the Holy Spirit says through Paul, do nothing with this kind of attitude. Do nothing with this attitude. That's number one, personal gain. An ambition to get my way, see my influence in ministry rise, no matter what. That's number one. Number two, the second rival to United Church and the other motivation behind disunity. We have personal gain, now we have personal glory. Personal glory. Paul says, do nothing from conceit. This word shows up often in ancient secular literature. And it always describes, every time without fail, someone who thinks far too highly of themselves. This is someone who embodies the exact opposite of humility. It refers to an inflated sense of self-importance and self-worth. This is vainglory. It's an attitude that says, I'm always right, and I'm willing to fight for my position, even if I'm proven wrong. The conceited man is arrogant and obnoxious. Several of you are old enough to remember that boxing legend, Muhammad Ali, right? Just the mentioning of his name. You know exactly where I'm going with this. In many ways, he was the first professional athlete to go over the top in marketing himself. You might recall he would say things like what? Float like a butterfly? Sting like a bee? These hands can't hit what his eyes can't see? He would even claim to flip a light switch at night and make it to the bed before the room went dark. He was that fast. Supposedly, this mythic man was on a plane once when the fastened seatbelt sign flipped on due to some moderate turbulence. Everyone complied except Muhammad Ali. The flight attendant approached him and asked him to please fasten his seatbelt. Please observe the captain's orders. To which he audaciously replied, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Well, to the attendant's credit, she fired back without skipping a beat. She said, Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) That'll knock you down a peg or two. But what was Muhammad Ali's most famous quote? You guys know it. I am the greatest. I am the greatest of all time. It's that attitude, that mindset that has no place in the church. None whatsoever. Personal glory might work for a while in the world where man-centeredness is celebrated. But it's an ugly thing for believers to buy into. In a lesser-known soundbite, Ali once made a confession. He said, quote, at home, I'm actually a nice guy, but I don't want the world to know that. Humble people, I've found, don't get very far, end quote. Galatians 6.3 says, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Some of you probably have Proverbs 16.18 memorized. Pride goes before what? A fall goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or Proverbs uh, 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, 
but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Church, God delights in flipping the narrative. He loves to humble the proud and lift up the lowly. Listen, you might be the greatest of all time, but you won't be for long if you start believing your own press. Because God has promised, he has made a promise over and over and over again within scripture to humble the proud. And this is something he does. He will do it. And even in the pride of our own hearts, we may think to ourselves, well, I'm okay. Or I don't think that's gonna happen to me. Well, friend, when God is against you, who's for you? God will humble the proud. What makes this disease of personal glory so dangerous is that like personal gain, this flavor of pride is deceptive. It's incredibly deceptive. Our self-centered hearts just love lying to us, don't they? They love telling us that we're better than we actually are. It's far too easy for us to think that we're something when we're nothing. So again, how do we know if this sin has received free reign in our hearts or not? How do we know? I'll give you a list of questions this time, more than one. Okay, so here are a few things to consider. You might be guilty of personal glory depending on how you answer these questions. Are you ready? Do you find yourself thinking, my convictions are more godly than theirs? My personal preferences are more important than theirs? My views are more accurate than theirs? My plans are more realistic than theirs? My gifts or talents are more useful than theirs. My ministry is more praiseworthy than theirs. Or how about this one? My mind is more spiritually mature than theirs. Let me ask you this, friends. We're able to look at each other's fruit, right? We're not clueless. And I'm not going to encourage you this morning to take something purple and call it yellow. We need to be realistic. But at the same time, let me ask you this. Who is the most sinful person you know? Now, if you automatically thought of somebody other than yourself, you're in trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. Who is the most sinful person that you know? I can look at the sins of a lot of people. But the more that I get to know myself and I get to know my own heart, the more condemned I become. And I hope the same is true for you. I hope you realize that the only person that we can really, truly wrestle with before the Lord is ourselves. You see, personal glory, it thinks the best of us and it thinks the worst of them. The word that Paul uses here in the Greek, it's a compound word. He actually takes two words and he puts them together to create this thought. One word is empty and the other word is glory. He literally says here, it's translated conceit, but he literally says empty glory. Don't do anything from empty glory. The word glory appears five times in Philippians, and the other four times it refers solely to God. This is the only instance where glory refers to men, and Paul makes it clear that this type of glory is completely empty. It's hollow, vacant, barren, and dead. Listen, when you take glory for yourself, you're not receiving what's owed to you. You're not getting your due. You're actually taking something that belongs to God. We often say, to God be all the glory. But are we patting ourselves on the back while we say it? We are angry when others get recognized 
for things and we get passed over? How often do we get upset when others don't recognize our sacrifices, our ministry, the things that we have done for others? Friends, for our last point, let's go ahead and look at James chapter 3. James 3. Or we looked at James 3. Let's go to James 4 this time. James chapter 4. Yeah, in in chapter 3 we saw worldly wisdom and selfish ambition at the end. James continues here in chapter 4 with a question. He transitions seamlessly from jealousy and selfish ambition to this question. And they're not unconnected. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He then goes on to describe the source of these quarrels and fights, of this disunity. He says it's because of your passions, your desires, your coveting, and your priorities. But where does it all come from? What is the ultimate source? He finally gets to that, and he tells us in verse 6. He says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, pride is the source of it all. And look at what he then tells these fighting Christians to do next. Again, he's talking to believers. He tells these Christians in verse 8 or verse 9, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Church, at the beginning of this message, I told you the essential attitude for unity is humility. On the flip side of that truth, it is equally true that the essential attitude for disunity is pride. The essential attitude for disunity is pride. It can always be traced back to that without fail every single time. Pride is the original sin and it is always the enemy of unity. Jonathan Edwards had this to say about it. He wrote, Pride is the worst viper in the heart. It is the first sin that ever entered into the universe. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. Of all lust, it is the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working. It is ready to mix with everything. Nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or so dangerous of consequence. And there is no one sin that does so much to let the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions. End quote. So church, this morning, as we turn our hearts to the Lord's table, let's examine ourselves. Let's do it now, but let's do it even afterwards. Let's do it this afternoon. Let's do it tonight. Let's do it the rest of this week. Let's do it for the rest of our lives. Let's examine ourselves. Let's ask Christ to expose our hearts, and let's confess and repent of our pride. Let's clothe ourselves with humility. Let's put away these two vices, personal gain and personal glory, by having the same mindset that Christ had. The same mindset that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's deny ourselves, pick up our cross, our instruments of death, and let's follow him in his example. And next week we will unpack exactly what that looks like.
I'm going to finish this out here with a closing prayer of benediction from our good friend Martin Luther. He says, Almighty God, let no man among us seek his own good and forget his neighbor's advantage. May we put aside all hate, envy, and discord and live with one another as the true children of God, saying in this fellowship, not merely my Father, but our Father. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you today. Thank you.